So welcome everyone here tonight and everyone listening on the podcast channel. Pastor Joey here once again. Um, I just want to recap where we are. We're coming out of Exodus chapter 21, where we uh, touched on one of the funnest part of the Bible, uh, dealing with Hebrew servants and personal injuries. I know you were super excited to know what the unpack on that was. And now we're going to be moving into chapter 22. And uh, I just want to kind of set the pace for you of what we're looking at in this, because we're basically kind of recapping and unpacking on, I, you know, on the Ten Commandments. So God has already delivered the Ten Commandments, and now he's unpacking a lot of regulations that are coming that, because you know how, if you've ever had kids, there's the what-if situation. So God already knows that when he's dealing with the Hebrew children, well, they're going to come in with the what-if. Well, what if? well, what if my ox goes in somebody else's property and eats their grapes? Do I have to replace the grapes? And God's like, all right, let's do chapter 22. Okay, so that's kind of where we are. But you have to understand, Israel up until this point has never been a nation. Israel has never had an identity as a country of their own. Up until this point, they've been a family with a covenant with God. And they went down to Egypt, and then they grew from a family of about 70. You think of a collection of people with Joseph and his father and all of his children, right? And they went from 70 all the way up to 2 million So that family has grown from more than just a family, a tribe. Now we're moving into a nation because God has moved Israel out of Egypt and is now going, I'm going to put you in my promised land. I'm going to be your leader. I'm going to be your government, and I'm going to show you how to do this. And that's basically what we're seeing right here. So you have to understand, God is trying to not only just show them the way, but he's also trying to break them of old habits because the old habits was whatever whatever Pharaoh thought. So if you think about it, if you're a slave, you start to understand that the way that the world works is on the whim of another person. And God is going, no, there is going to be a standard. There is going to be a truth. And we are going to be guided by that standard and truth. And you will know who I am by those ordinances. Like you'll know my heart. And that's how you'll know how to govern yourself when you move out day to day. So here's the Ten Commandments. And here's like, if you want to Say, like, here's the Bill of Rights, really. It's what we're going through. And so you have to understand when you're going through this, this is a slave mentality that's being broken into a person to go, how do I make slaves into citizens? How do I make slaves into participating citizens in a nation? And this is how you do it. You give them an identity through the law that you're building. One of the greatest things that I ever heard is when someone um, in my class, I got to go see their mom and dad, you know, get sworn in to the country. And they're like, it feels so great to be an American. And I said, why? And he goes, because this is the land of the free. And I'm like, that's awesome. And they go, this is the only place because the laws before held us down. The laws here free you. And I was like, what? Are, I mean, like, as an American, we take that for granted. But to hear that from a person from the outside looking in and now participating in that, they're like, these laws are about freedom. These laws are about balance and harmony. And I want you to understand that that's what God's trying to bring in. I want to move you out of the place where it's slavery when you're under one man and how he felt that day. Think about it, Pharaoh. Oh, too much hummus last night. I don't know. Take their bricks away. You know, like that's the world that they lived under. And they're like, so it's based on how he feels. But when you're now operating under a God, we're going to operate not on how he feels, but who he is. And so that's what God is revealing. So I want you to see what God is bringing to this place. Really, when you look at it, the rules and the guidelines are law and order. First, there's law and now there's order. And you have to understand what is law and order supposed to bring? Harmony and peace. 
harmony and peace. That's why if you ever get into First or Second Corinthians, when Paul is writing to uh, the first, you know, to the Corinthian church, he's like, "You guys are out of order." I mean, you're supposed to be doing church, but I mean, it's all kinds of crazy. And when you read it, he's like, it's, it doesn't read like as much as encouragement. Like he does point you in the right way towards God, but he's like, y'all got to be quiet when the pastor's talking. Like it's getting too loud and yippy yappy back here. And then he's saying, you know, you can't get all crazy and talk about all kinds of lascivious acts that are happening in the street. You're now in church. Why? Because they were out of order. So we had to bring them in order. So that's basically what we're doing right here, right now, is God is bringing people to a place from disorder to order. And I want you to know that is the heart of God. Look at this, this uh, slide, this verse, 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in the congregations of the Lord's people. So think about this. Since sin has entered into this world, we have lost peace. Just think about peace. Peace is lost to us. Without Jesus, peace is lost. And order is gone. And why? Because we lost the governance of God over our heart. When Adam and Eve were walking through the garden, were they thinking, I wonder what the mayor thinks? Or like, I mean, should I stop in a city council? You know, like, do I have to get a permit for that? No. They were governed by a relationship with God. Remember, I'm always maintaining this. Out of a right relationship with God becomes right obedience. And so that's what governed them. And that's what we're saying here. And think about at the time of the Garden of Eden, what did we see? Animals were great. The lion laid down with the lamb. No problem. Now we don't have that problem. We don't have that, that peace because we have animals that are out of order. Think about this. Even plants are out of order. The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? Now we're going to have thorns and, and the ground's going to work against you. If you've ever had crabgrass, that evil demon weed, it looks like other grass. And then, you know, and then you're like, oh man, if I can tell Adam about all the times that I had to go out in the yard and deal with this thing. Think about this. Weather is out of order. There was never a hurricane. There was never a tsunami. There was never a tornado until sin. Just think of how out of order we are. And so God is going, you know what? I need to bring you out. And that's our, you know, this is a word that we come from, uh, like, uh, like, you know, COVID and everything, the new norm, right? It's the new normal that we're dealing with. The new normal, which has been the constant normal for us, is a life out of order. That's how we live it. We have hurricane shutters because guess what? That's life, Right? And so I like to think about this as this is how God is coming into the life of the Jews and coming into them and setting up a nation. It's, my mom would always do this. She'd be like, so, you know, the cleaning lady's coming over. And we're like, that's cool, right? You know, like, well, that, that's great, mom. I'm glad you hired a cleaning lady. And she's like, we got to clean up before the cleaning lady gets here. And I'm like, mom, that makes zero sense. Like, are you hearing the words coming out of your mouth? Like, as a 12-year-old kid, I was like, make that make sense, mom. You're paying hers for us to clean. You know, like, I was like, that, you should pay me. Pay me, and I'll clean the house. And then she would clean because we were going to go on vacation because the last thing mom wants to see when she comes home from vacation is a house out of order. And so when I say we're bringing a house out of disorder into order, I want you to see this, this first picture. If we can put this out there. This is the boys' playroom. This is the boys' playroom in the morning. I got permission. Don't worry. Nobody look at Jackie. It's fine. I got permission for this picture. So every morning, the boys come to me and go, Dad, Mom's asleep. Let's wrestle. Like, and I'm like, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll wear you out before Mom gets up. Let's go wrestle. But I'm like, I can't wrestle here. This is, this is too many 
sharp points and plastic pieces, and I'm going to be the one losing because I can't overpower you because then I'm, then I'm that kind of a dad, right? So I got to be on the floor losing against my two sons, but I'm going to be losing in this. And I'm like, there's no way I can lose in this. That's going to be painful. So what do I say? Hey, guys, what do we got to do? We got to clean up. We got to put everything back in order. And then it looks like this. And literally, let me tell you how amazing this is. They whine and complain for 15 minutes, and it takes them three seconds to pick up. Like, everything has a place. Jackie has a basket and a location for every single thing. And they whine, like, oh, this is so tough. This is so hard. But then as soon as I start showing them, dinosaurs go in this basket. Farm animals go in this basket. Star Wars goes in this basket. Everything just starts to flow. They go, oh, daddy, that makes sense. That's cool. Let's do it. And then we can finally wrestle. Why? Because the Christian walk is exactly this taking what is in disorder and giving it back to God so he can put it in order. So the teaching of the law is not just teaching us about our heart, you know, like being incorrect, but it's showing God's heart to us. He's inoculating us and injecting peace into our life by showing us his plan. Otherwise, we are living with all those toys across the floor. But those toys across the floor is your heart and all the situations that you're dealing with. And God's like, I have a plan for every single thing. I have an answer for every single thing. I have a solution if you would just listen to me. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about applying heavy responsibility to the person and preventing also heavy retaliation. You have to look at it that way. Because the moment something can go wrong, you know, uh, you know we, we make this joke in my house growing up. You know, I would, you know, my brother would punch me in the arm. He'd walk by, you know, nobody was looking. Boom, he'd hit me in the arm and I'm like, Oh my goodness, when you go to sleep tonight, it's going to be an elbow off the top dresser. But that's not an equal response to what he did. That's above and beyond, right? And we used to make the joke, it's like nuking a beehive. You don't drop a nuclear bomb on a beehive, you put bug spray on a beehive. And sometimes we can react and overreact. And that's what this is about. In the event that you are going to be wrong, in the event sin comes your way, in the event that you become a victim of a crime, how are you supposed to conduct yourself? And it's all here because the Israel people are saying, but God, what if? And God's like, okay, let's talk about it. Verse, 20, uh, verse 1 in chapter 22, join me here. It says, whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. And you would say, if you were reading this, why? I don't have any sheep. You know, I don't live out in Felsmere. I don't know what's going on. I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about. I have a nice place with a short yard, and I do a mowing. It takes me 10 seconds. But this is important because this could represent someone's livelihood. The loss of an ox, the loss of a sheep could wipe out somebody not only for months but maybe years. And you have to see how do we mitigate justice in this situation. And God is saying that. Did you know, I, I found this fascinating. I actually was watching a documentary on cattle ranchers. Don't ask me why. Uh, Jackie was in bed before I do, and I stay up late, and I'm like, oh, cattle ranchers. So I'm watching things, and they were still hanging cattle thieves in the early 1900s because of how devastating it was to lose one cow. And they're, and they're moving, you know, so many hundreds of heads of cattle, but they're like, that's a reproducing cow, or that's a bull that, you know, that could, that could reproduce more. That's huge. That loss is felt. So God is not denying the, the loss of someone, you know, being the victim of theft. And he's saying right here, look at how we're going to do it. And I think this is pretty great in my opinion. Let's pay them back five times or four times over. 
And I want to let you know, what's really great about that is that when they stopped hanging people out in the West for stealing cattle, this is what they started suggesting. This. Why don't we make the thieves hang around, either work it off or pay it back? So whatever it costs to replace an ox or a bull for four times over, you're going to stay and work. But think about what's happening in that moment. You're not a thief that gets put into the system and sent to jail. You're a thief that has to face the victim every day. So if like come back and work, you're going to have to come back and work and see the results of your actions. And so what's happening here is there's all kinds of things that are happening between the victim and the criminal. And it's all kinds of conversation. Just you guys know Chuck Colson, if anybody knows this name, he was actually really strong in this inside of the prison ministry. He would go into the prison ministry, and he started recommending this. And they had less and less repeat offenders in his group because of the restitution that was taking place, not only on the money level, but on the personal level, on the spiritual level. The thief said, you know what? I never want to look in somebody's eyes and see that again. That's what they were saying on the other side. Not, I can't believe this wasted my time and their time. They said, I hurt. That hurt to face it. And that was where God's bringing him in. And you want to think about this. It's powerful and it works. Think about Zacchaeus. Remember, Jesus just spent one little short time with him at lunch. And what does he come out and say in Luke 19? I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And then if I've ripped anybody off, I'm going to pay them four times back. That's instituting exactly what this verse is saying. And so Zacchaeus is saying, I, I, now that I look in Jesus' eyes, and now that I see compassion, and now that I see redemption, you know what I want to be? I want to be a part of that. So I believe that this system works. Look at verse 2. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Now, this is a very fascinating verse, especially um, if you're any of the people that follow any gun rights or stay in your ground. This has a lot to do with, it takes a really long time to light a candle when a thief is in the house. And so what they're saying is when the sun goes down and you're like, I don't know. I have zero idea if this guy's here to hurt us, right? Because he's just rooting around in the house. They're saying if you kill that guy, that's like self-defense because it takes a long time to put the oil in the lamp. And I don't know, he could be right there. And they're like, they're basically saying you, you, you were scared. You were frightened for your family, and you defended. Good for you. But if it is after sunrise, and you can see the face, then more often than not, you can know if that person's there to cause harm. Or two, you might know them. So if they flee, you can go, yeah, it was totally my neighbor, Joey. Get him. Like, that's how it was, and that's what they're saying. So look at that. There's actually a protection of life. There's a protection of the family. There's a protection of the household. But then there's also, hey, let's protect the sanctity of the life of somebody making a wrong decision after sunrise. But I like that there's a distinction there. Like, don't do it at nighttime. So continues that anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. So once again, we're coming back to this. God is not saying that you shouldn't forgive the person and then they're scot-free, turn the other cheek and move on. No, there's going to be accountability and responsibility for the crimes that were committed and it's here. And just so you guys know, I love this word. Restitution comes from the word salem, which is very close to the word shalom, right? So they comes to the word of peace, but it's a different kind of peace. It's a complete peace. Think about it. It's not like the cops came over and got the thief and dragged him away and like, you know, the locksmith and came and fixed the door. No, no. 
it's almost like restoration in the faith of what God is doing here. It's a complete and total peace because you just think about it. I remember one time somebody broke into our garage when we went on vacation and a neighbor told us, I know exactly who it is. Like, and so it really bothered me that somebody came in and went through my stuff. Like, you know, you work hard, you, you locked up. We only went for vacation for three, like three or four days. And then we came back and it was like, oh man, our stuff has been violated. We've been violated. Somebody took advantage of us. But then it hurt even more when I found out that it was one of my friends. My friends knew that I went on vacation, and so they rallied kids in the next neighborhood to come in and break in, and my neighbor said, I actually saw them leaving. Like, how could you see them? It was early in the morning. Go, I, I heard them say each other's names, and I was like, oh. And then we found out that one of the kids was trying to sell some jewelry at a pawn shop, and then that kid later got in a car. The one that was my friend got into a car and was driving uh, down the street and got killed in a car accident. Now, here's the thing. I never got to face him. But now reading this verse, I like to think that if there was ever an opportunity for him to come back and work off what he did, there might have been a writing of the relationship between us because I'll let you know, for a long time, I just like kind of lost faith. Not faith in God, but just kind of faith in what God is doing in other people's lives. Just for a split second, because why? Because I've been hurt. I've been violated by somebody I trusted. But I think about what is that word salem? What is restitution? Working towards bringing everybody back into harmony. Because sin is in this world. We live in a fallen world, and God is riding the ship. He's bringing everything from disorder back into order. And so restoration is not just about retrieving what is lost. It's about restoring the faith that we have in what God's doing. And God is at the center of this particular decision. Look at verse 4. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock, livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. So this one's a little bit like you can see, like we're, we're easing off. We went from four times to five, you know, five times to four times to two times. Now it's just like it's a dumb animal. It can't read signs. If you don't have a fence, it's probably going in somebody else's thing. So you know what? Just help them out. And I want to let you know something. What's really fascinating about the verbiage here and the way that it's written is Jesus is actually observing this law himself. Jesus is actually living by this law. Look at Isaiah 53.6. It says, We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the same kind of talk that they're laying here. We, in our own way, are like, and just so you want to know, when they use the word sheep, it's like dumb sheep. The dumbest of the dumbest animals. Like, oh, there's something really great over there. Let me go over there and eat that. And it's like, don't go over there. It's somebody else's property. First of all, you shouldn't be over there. And sometimes they go over to another place and eat something they shouldn't, and they get sick. And still, the owner has to pay for that, doesn't he? It doesn't matter what the animal thought or didn't think. It didn't matter what the situation is. The owner is responsible. And so the iniquity of the animal is laid on the owner. And just think about this. As creation, we wander everywhere, and God has to pay the price. So he holds true to that. And so he paid the price for us wandering off. Look at verse 6. It says, if a fire breaks out and spreads into the thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, then the one who started the fire must make restitution. And so this is going back to negligence, right? 
Like, you know, so this is what people do. They would like, and we can see it sometimes on the highway. You may have even, I think we smelled a little something today burning. I don't know if you were outside. They do the control burns, right, to burn off the brush. And they would do the same thing in their farm property here. And so sometimes a guy would be burning, burning on this side of the field, burning on this field. The wind would change, and boom, that fire would jump from one field to another. That's not, the, that's not anybody's fault but your own for your negligence, for not preparing for that situation. And so we're, once again, we're protecting the livelihood. But think about how God is calibrating here. He's not just talking about the personal responsibility of the guy that's out there burning. He's going, if it was me, right? My, I come out, my whole field's burnt. Oh my gosh, I'm going to go burn down his house. Are you kidding me? He just ruined all my crops for the year. How are we going to eat? What is he doing? He's calibrating everybody's heart towards what? Fixing the problem, but by which way? Redemption and restoration, which is the heart of God. He's setting an identity for the people to live. But think about this. As we live here in America, maybe he's giving them laws of freedom to operate in so that we all understand how we're supposed to treat each other under God's governance. And that's what we're having here. There's a calibration towards that heart of redemption. Look at verse 7. If anyone gives neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. And so we don't really do this much today because some of you guys have a lot of like safes or maybe you have storage or anything like that, locks, everything. But back in the day, what they would do, even if you had a chest and you put a lock on it, somebody could come in your house and take that while you're away. And just think about it. There's multiple reasons why people would go away for a wedding, for a funeral. And what you would do is you would go to your neighbor and say, hey, I have all these valuables. Will you watch them while I'm gone? In hopes that when they leave, they give you their valuables. And that's the, that's the understanding that we have. But sometimes somebody gets sticky fingers, right? But they're saying here the law and the, and the precedence here is to potentially deal with your neighbor based on what? An investigation. Maybe your neighbor did get ripped off, but if he got ripped off while he was holding your stuff, he's still held accountable. But let's do an investigation to make sure, not jumping to conclusions. I know what you did. I know you had your eyes on my silver spoons. I know that. I know you like my fine china. But that's what he's saying. Let's not go to the place where we overreact. Let's not drop a nuclear bomb on a beehive. Let's actually deal with the problem in harmony. Look at verse 9. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, which that's, I don't know why, that made me laugh. In illegal possession of an ox or a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declares guilty must pay back double to the other. So basically, this sounds like small claims court, right? You know, like, it's mine, it's yours, I don't know, whatever, you know. It's basically what it is. But God's saying, let a mediator come in. Let somebody objective come and take a look because you guys can't see clearly because you're fighting over the same ox. Very exciting stuff, I know. Verse 10, it says this. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, or a sheep, or any other animal to the neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord, that the neighbor did not lay his hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from a neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. 
if it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, because remember the what if, right? Well, what if it's, yeah, here it is. God's like, I'll answer it. The neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence, and it shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. The one thing I want to point out here, and this is very, very fascinating to me, is this part right here where it says in verse 11, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord. Imagine entering in, and we do this today because it's the Bible, but you know not everybody tells the truth, but imagine entering into a situation where you're on the honor system with God as he's setting up the nation and setting the precedence for everybody. Um, I don't know if you're going to be in a lying mood at that moment. But I want to just remind you, the omniscience and the omnipotence of God is that he is everywhere at every time. So we are on this honor system. And sometimes we think lowly today, I think more so, on the word honor. Just think about that. Just think about that word honor. I want to take you to a Bible verse. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. It says this. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. And I want you to think about that. When you think about the quality of someone's honor, how great is God's honor? Just take a step back and think about God's honor. When, he, when God honors you, is there anything lowly in value about that? When he lays his honor on you, like, Lord, I don't agree, I'm not happy, but I'm going to honor you. I'm going to th- honor your parents, right? It doesn't say agree with them. It says honor them. It means bring honor to them. It means to uplift and esteem their words regardless of how you feel. And in doing so, you bring glory to God, to them as well, right? And so the idea is here is not about agreeing with God, but to bring honor to God. And look what he says. But those who despise me will be disdained. Why? Because they have disvalued the highest honor of all time, God honoring you. And I just want you to think about this, too, if you can put this in perspective, because this might be a place where it's like, Joey, we're talking about ox and sheep, and I don't get it. But I want to put in perspective for you this. Think about this. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and just this verse right here. Think about this. Was Saul honorable to David? Not at all, right? I mean, just because they sang an extra line in a verse in a pop song, he got all bent out of shape and now he's throwing spears at him because, oh, how dare they sing something better about you than me? So guess what? I'm going to dishonor you in every situation. What did David do for Saul? Did David honor Saul? Regardless of the situation, he, he acted honorably. He took a noble high road. Why? Because he wanted to honor Saul because of his position, but he also wanted to honor God. Why? Because of the honor that God laid on him. So the accountability and the personal responsibility has nothing to do with what's going externally on around you. It has everything to do with what's going internally around you. And this is to help guide you and govern you. When people hurt you, when people sin against you, it does not matter what they do because God's going to go, well, you should have told me that they treated you that bad. I mean, I can understand the murder now. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, no, no, no. You are accountable to what you said. I can see why you lied to your wife because every time you tell the truth, she goes, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. <laughs> the fact of the matter is it does not matter what happens externally. You are accountable to your heart before the Lord because if you honor God, God will honor you. But if you bring that despise to his word, he will bring disdain. It's clear as day. And you just think about this. Has Jesus honored you? Regardless of what you've done, let me ask you this question. This is a crazy thing that I wrote in a, in a Devo a long time ago. I love when I open up a Devo from like 20 years ago and it just blows me away. Have I stolen from Jesus? Have you stolen from Jesus? And did he still act honorably? That's what these verses are about conducting ourselves in a way that we restore faith in God and restore faith in each other.
Look at verse 14. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is present, they must make restitution. Oh, sorry, well, the owner is not, prostitute, not, not present. Look at verse 15. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. And so this is, once again, just bringing it back into this. And, you know, this is crazy, too, because you've got to think about this. You know, if you, if, if you came to me and you were like, hey, can I borrow your ox? I need to plow my field. And then I stood there and watched you do it. Like, you know, like guys do. Guys look at another guy moan. is like, yep, yep, you got to put that kind of fertilizer on there. Yep, yep, you got to do that. And then the animal dies, right? And you're like, oh, that's totally your fault. And you're like, you were standing right here. A meteor just fell out of the sky and killed it. You saw what happened. <laughs> the only thing that's really happening is we are regulating drama, aren't we? If the owner saw how it died and he's lying about it, he's not taking personal responsibility because with his own eyes he saw the truth, but yet he doesn't want to take any responsibility for the loss of that animal even though he was standing there. And I just think about this. God is regulating drama now. Just think about that. How awesome would life be without drama? Just suck all the drama out of every situation how great life would be, but now we have regulation for it, right? So if we didn't have people, we wouldn't have people problems. Now we have Exodus chapter 22. Thanks, people. Here we go. Verse 16. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for the virgins. So this is kind of crazy because this is premarital sex that requires immediate marriage. Like you seduce a young lady, you have sex, Guess what? You have to pay the bride price. But what's crazy to me about this, talking about drama, think about this. You're like, oh, I guess we've got to get married now, right? And then the, the, the dad looks at the guy and goes, ew, no way. Like, he has this say, like, just think of how much drama is in He goes, but I still, I still need the cash. I know this is serious business before the Lord, but the situation is like, this is beyond me. Like, I could sit and think about, like, with the dad and the guy looking at each other and the change. But think about this. That we, don't, we don't operate in a world of dowry. We don't, we don't think in these terms. But I will bring it to our terms. Think about what a man has to pay for an engagement ring, right? And so I, I went online and I looked. And I, it used to be, I don't know if maybe Jackie and I have been married for so long or what's going on. But I remember it was like two, two months wages would be the kind of engagement ring. You know, and I'm like, wow, two months. I remember having to do that. But I was like, wow, that's a lot. Now it's three months. But think about that. Average median wage of somebody, let's just like put this in the world. Well, let's say Jerusalem, $3,000 a month. So if you have sex one time and get caught before marriage, this is crazy to me. You, you owe me $9,000 right now. And I'm just like, that's crazy. But guess what? The dad still has the opportunity to go, anyways, see you, take a hike. And that's the situation. But think about this in today's terms, is that the loss of a daughter is actually the loss of workforce in the house. Even though we might not think of her as like out in the field, like tending to sheep, or, but she was actually valuable to the, to, the, to the dad. And that's why the dowry is. But he's like, here's what you're doing. You're messing with our family legacy, number one. Number two, you're, le- you're messing with my workforce. And God is taking that serious enough to say, I'm not only going to make you pay regardless, guess what? The dad has the final say. Just so you know, this is actually the language that is being used when God is picking a bride for Jesus Christ. Not that, you know, we're entering into any scandalous, but God to go, I chose the church for you, Jesus. Jesus didn't choose the church. The father of the groom went out and chose because he chose her because of what he saw in her and what he saw in his son. 
And so God takes the situation of choosing a bride and choosing a groom to come together very seriously, and you can see by the value he placed on it. Verse 18, it says, Do not allow a sorceress to live. I love that verse. That's it. You come across one, done, right? And I wanted to just let you know what a sorceress is. Like, it could sound like a witch, but it's closer to a median here. A lot of people in this region were very big into talking into ancestors. So I don't know if you've ever seen those TV shows where they, they find out they debunk them a lot, but it's people that are talking to that. It's like necromancy, right? So this happened a lot in pagan cultures, and God is like, I don't even want to play. She's done. Now look at verse 19. Now I want to see, there's actually a weird sandwich here. Look at this. 18 being one side, look at 19 being the middle. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. That's is part of that pagan practice. This was very strong in the cultures, in the promise that we're going. We're like, we're like, ugh. And clearly God is ugh too, because he's like, kill, kill the psychics, kill the bestiality people, moving on. Look at how much he did about social responsibility with a virgin, or oxes and sheep, but those people were done. Look at verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. Now you can see why these three verses are compact here. Because it's a whole way of life that is damaged beyond repair. And I'm going to tell you why. Look at verse Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. It says this. No, I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. So what he's talking about is anything that is entered into the worship of an idol. What he's talking about there is anything that is worshipped in an idol, there's no such thing as an idol. There is no other gods. There's demons tricking people. So if a sorceress is connected to a demon and they're speaking about the dead and I don't know what information the demon is feeding her, she is beyond repair. She is damaged beyond that. You're like, well, we could cast her out. No, these are people who have been confronted with the nation of Israel and are confronted with God speaking on top of Mount Sinai. Think about that. I saw the lightning. I saw the smoke. Moses went up and down. He's glowing like a light bulb. He came down with 10 commandments, right? Things are crazy right now. God's on the move. I'm still going to be a sorceress that converts with demons. God's like, you've been confronted with the truth visually and spiritually, and you still choose demons. You're beyond, you're, you're beyond repair. Because if you don't change at that, you won't change at anything. And that's why he's saying, for us to move forward as a nation, we got to cut out that sickness. That's going to have no place. We're going to find out, chapter 34, they go right back to the golden calf. God will deal with them. Look at this, verse 21. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. That's a verse that hits, doesn't it? Just think about that. Anybody who comes into your land that is a stranger or an alien, I want you to remind yourself that you were a stranger and alien and how you were treated. You were treated a specific way under Pharaoh because Pharaoh was afraid. But I am the Lord your God, and I'm telling you how to conduct yourself when people come into my land. Not your land, my land. And I want you to remember this. You deserved compassion, and I pulled you out. I'm the one that gave you compassion. So show them my compassion. I find that very crazy. Look at this, verse 22. Do not take advantage of the widows or the fatherless. If you do, they cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. When God says that, you got to listen. I will hear their cry. Verse 24, my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. I want to stop here for just one second. What imagery comes up in your head when God says, my anger has been aroused? 
Like, I'm just like, I mean, my eyebrows almost hit my top of my head here. Because think about this. In other verses, when people spoke out against God, he simply did something. Oh, send in the snakes. Open up the ground, right? Two people lied to Peter. What happened? They dropped dead. There was no thing. But then God goes, guess what? My anger is aroused. I'm up. Why? Because you did something to the least of these. You took advantage of the people who are now crying out to me. And let's think about this. I don't know if it specifically means him. Imagine God coming at you with a sword. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly what we're trying to put the imagery that he could send in another nation. And in fact, he's done that to Israel several times, right? I sent in the Persians, sent in the Assyrians. But imagine God picking up a sword because you're, you're acting crazy, right? Before the Lord. Look at it. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Look at verse 25. If you lend money to one of the, my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So basically, there's no such thing as a bank or a loan shark, you know, bank charging exorbitant interest in my nation. And in fact, up until I think a long time, even all the way through, I, I think even Nazi Germany, a lot of Jews were not charging interest to other Jews because of this rule right here. And God is saying, I want you to be serious about this. I don't want you to put people under the yoke of money. If you're going to bless them, bless them. And then if you take their cloak, think about this. The guy has to return the next day and return the cloak. He's already embarrassed. Don't take his dignity at night so he can't even stay warm. Look at the, they, and he, if, if they cry to me, I will be compassionate. Look at verse 28. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold the back offerings from your granaries or your vats. Think about this. This is a, in the Bill of Rights of the Jews. Do your tithe. It's important enough for God to remind his people that if you are not paying a tithe to him or whatever is required in the offering at this time, he's saying, guess what? If you hold back, it's a sin. If you pretend to forget, it's a sin. If you don't think it's important, it's a sin. That's his words right here. Look at this. Continued, he goes even deeper. I'm going to remind you from Exodus 13. He's saying, you must first give me your firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep and let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. And just so you guys know, in case there's any, because this, I always get this question. Does this mean sacrifice? No. What they're talking about in Exodus chapter 13, God said, give me your firstborn because I'm going to dedicate them to the priesthood. I'm going to take your children and apply them to the first. So your firstborn of your house will belong to me. And that was to echo the promise that he showed them during the Passover, right? So the Passover came and all the Hebrew boys lived, right? That were under the blood, right? Under the covenant. But what happened to all the Egyptian firstborn? Dead. And God is like, you owe me. You owe me because I'm going to, and I'm going to take you a little bit deeper. I'm going to give you the firstborn of the dead, Jesus Christ the first one to ever resurrect himself. So when you ever hear that word, because you're like, they say that a lot in the New Testament, like, firstborn of the dead. You're like, that's a weird way to talk about Jesus. Not my Jesus. My Jesus, that sounds creepy. But he's saying he's the first one to ever be resurrected. He, just you know, the word firstborn is even closer to prince. Think about that. There's God the Father and God the Son. He's saying, I'm going to give my prince for you to come into the kingdom. Isn't that a cha change of the way you see that? And so what he's saying here is, I'm giving you my prince in the future. Give me your prince. But he would only say this, I want to consecrate them to the ministry. So those you know, Exodus chapter 13, that's what they're talking about. We don't have time to go there. 
but you can see that that's what they were meant for. Eventually, they'll lose that right. Verse 31, you are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. So once again, we're talking about being holy, being pure and being blameless. Now, it doesn't mean perfect. It just means if you see something that falls under these ordinances, do your best, you know, restore, commit, be the kind of people that lead people in the direction towards the redemption of God. Because why would you say that you're a Christian and then lead people away from redemption? Why would you say that you're a Christian and lead people away from the commandments of God? You can't. You are of a higher calling. You're of a higher ideal. You are of the law and order and the peacekeeping standards of God. And he has called you to this nation. Now, not specifically the nation of Israel, to the kingdom of God. Think about when you enter into the gates of, of the kingdom of heaven, right? And you come through. Are you think that you're going to see any of the social injustice that you see here in this world? I'm just going to put this picture. I'm going to get really crazy just for one second. Nobody look at Pastor Craig while I do this. This is really crazy. No, he's, he's cool. Think about this. We're talking about Roe versus Wade. Do you think that we're going to deal with the issue of abortion in heaven? No, because that's not even a social thing. Because why? Because Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning and everybody that's following him will never have a tear that won't be wiped away from him and will have a new life following in the order of God. That's why we're supposed to do this. Colossians 3.17, we're preparing for this. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father through him. What are we gonna do? We are preparing for a life of forgiveness for eternity. So yes, when we get to heaven, we'll have a heavenly body and we'll be restored. But guess what? We won't have to worry about forgiveness because we'll be operating in an eternal life that has been forgiven and moved forward with no problems. So we are preparing for that life now. Here's what we're doing. We are bringing the peace of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're going to be entering into the peace of Christ. Eternity that we are living for starts today. Not the moment we get to heaven, the moment Jesus came into our hearts. Because why? I want you to see this, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And I want you to see this, it says, and the government, let's say this, his government. His government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just think about this. If you want to know how you are being raised up, you are being raised up in the standards, in the rules, and the guidelines of the Prince of Peace. We, as a Christian kingdom, need to start operating that way. We are no longer a people of strife. We are no longer a people of, of anxiety and fear. We are a people that trust that our wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting Father is moving us into a kingdom of peace. For what reason? For redemption, for restoration. And when we exemplify that to the world, they can do nothing but sit in awe that we are not part of the kingdom that's falling apart. We are a part, no longer the part of the kingdom of war and strife and conflict. We're no longer the, the, the world of lies. We're no longer the, lies, the, the world of corruption. We are the world of everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that is who we are. And we should live for his name's sake because he is our king. And so yes, I'm an American, but guess what? I live under a theocracy and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And he rules and reigns. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you and I praise you that you are king. I love that whatever you say goes. When you move, the world moves. 
And Lord, you spoke us into existence. You chose us and you picked us for your kingdom. And now we stand here tall and proud because you gave us value. You gave us guidelines. You gave us strength. We are citizens of the kingdom of God simply just because you are you and you chose us. So Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I'm gonna just pray right now. If there's anybody in this room that wants to be a part of that kingdom, that wants Jesus Christ to be their king, that wants Jesus Christ to be their Messiah, to forgive their mistakes, and they can move into a Prince of Peace world, please raise your hand. If that's you, raise your hand today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're going to pray this prayer together. This ensures our citizenship. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being the king. I confess that I am a sinner and I have not been living for you. But I confess my sins now. I believe that you are Jesus Christ. I believe that you are the Messiah and that you are my king and that I will live in eternity with you forever, starting today. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Amen.